Welcome to the Further Light Podcast, presented by Wisconsin Freemasonry, helping you accomplish your Masonic goals through education and more light. And now, I present to you, Brother Chris Ludke. Listeners, scholars, brothers, this is Brother Chris Leakey, and today I want to explore Freemasonry and the Enlightenment. Really, this is going to be part of a two-part series on ideas of the Enlightenment and how they really give birth to a lot of the modern ideas of Freemasonry. The way I look at it, Masonry was went through its adolescence and its teen years as we move through the Enlightenment. Why do I say that? Because just like as a teenager, between the ages of 16 and 24, your dopamine levels are high, and so the music that you listen to is probably the music that is going to have the greatest influence on you for the rest of your life, is what you hear at that point. I mean, think about what your parents listen to. They might have been listening to The Carpenters or Mozart. I don't know how old you are, but... That being said, that tends to be these formative years in which we create our personal tastes and really forms who we will become in the future. Masonry, similarly, goes through a major growth spurt in this period of the 18th century, right in the middle of the Enlightenment. And I'm going to be kind of freestyling the next couple of episodes. I'm looking at several sources. I'm working through them as I'm doing, creating this podcast. So you're kind of seeing my thought process live, which could be terrifying. I don't know. But in terms of sources, I'm looking at several. Uh, I'm looking at an article from the Springfielder in January of 1974, volume 38, number one called Freemasonry, A Living Expression of the Enlightenment by Norman uh, Wagerin, and this is from Concordia College. And just to give you an idea, that article, which is going to be a large part of this, or create a base for a large part of this, is basically arguing for an anti-Christian view of Freemasonry. So not exactly in our favor. However, the instructive tongue and the attentive ear would tend to teach us that Oftentimes, there is useful information that comes from, well, sometimes unlikely sources. I'm also looking at, I'm looking for the information here. Sometimes I don't have notes. I just have materials in front of me, and that's all right. I'm also looking at uh, Delmar Dara, History and Evolution of Freemasonry, uh, published in 1954, a bit of an older source. And I'm looking at some material from... A website known as the 19 or sorry 1723 constitutions.com looking at Freemasonry and science amongst other things that we'll be discussing so my goal here is to show you this link between enlightenment the enlightenment ideals and Freemasonry many of the ideas that we have I'm going to break it up into two parts the first one I'm going to talk about what the age of enlightenment was Because the explanation you got in a history class in high school was probably not that great. Then I'm going to talk about how that impacts religion in masonry uh, to some degree. In the second part, 
I will get into the ideas of the more secular ideas. So Freemasonry and science, Freemasonry and lectures, Freemasonry and uh, non-religious enlightenment ideas. That all being said, let's talk about the Enlightenment. Now, the Age of Enlightenment is one of the greatest periods in the intellectual history of the world because of the far-reaching effects which it had on the thinking of men. And it had three major characteristics. First, it substituted natural law for supernatural law. So, basically what's going on is people are saying, hey, instead of looking for knowledge from on high, as if God provided this knowledge and therefore we must simply accept it, they go, you know what? Maybe we should go and test it. Maybe we should experiment. Some people will, some scholars describe this as removing the blinders of religion. I'm not real keen on that imagery. But effectively what we do is, if the church teaches one thing, People will start testing it. And by the way, one thing that may not, none of these articles get into is during this time, the people who are doing a lot of the testing are the ones who have a lot of time and they tend to be college educated and have time on their hands. Who am I talking about? The clergy, especially in England, you see a lot of scientific discoveries, a lot of observation of the enlightenment coming out of the clergy in the Church of England as well as the Catholic churches such as they exist at the time in England. Number two, the Enlightenment exalted human reason, which had made possible the discovery of natural law. In other words, instead of thinking in terms of we need to be given things, uh, looking at God as a patriarchal form providing us with knowledge, they start to go, you know what, humans can create their own knowledge can test and experiment and find things outside in the world. Number three, the Enlightenment hoped to raise men from the lowly social estate in which, owing to the reign of superstition and tyranny, he had fallen uh, and to restore him to the dignity and happiness to which the philosophers of that time felt he had a right as a rational creature. Really wordy way that uh, the author is stating this, but basically arguing that any person could be a poor person, could be a wealthy person, any class can develop the knowledge necessary to move them through society. This idea of being a self-made man is really developing in the Enlightenment. Happens to be a period of time where we see the development or a further development of the middle class and there's several other standards and issues going on there, but that's not important now. One of these views then grew, uh, or out of these views, grew a new attitude towards religion, which many considered the most formidable institution inherited from the past. Remember, after the fall of Rome, Christianity really takes on the intellectual, uh, becomes the intellectual juggernaut of Europe for a long time, especially the early Middle Ages, so say 500 to 1000, it was oftentimes taught in the churches that there was no knowledge that you needed beyond that found in the Bible, which is why we lose so much from the Romans and the Greeks and we have to get it back later, but that's a whole different story. 
Particularly in England, men were sickened by religious quarrels. By the way, there's a lot of problems in England at the time, a lot of civil wars, uh, issues between Protestants and Catholics, which had come to a head during, among other times, the Puritan Revolution. Some of them looked for the common spiritual core in all Christian religions and hoped to use them as a unifying point. So basically arguing that because we're in England, because of all of the religious strife between Protestants and Catholics that are happening in England in the 17th and 18th centuries, that creates a situation where everyone kind of goes, look, I'm sick of the whole thing. Can't we create some kind of universal religion that gets rid of the entire hierarchy and structure and therefore eliminates all of these wars and conflicts that we see reigning across the landscape. They're aided by the contemporary movement in science and philosophy known as the Enlightenment. If man was better than the animals because he had reason, then there must be a supreme reasoner. Furthermore, if the universe operated as a machine under eternal law, then there must be a supreme law giver. Worship of such a being required neither dogma nor an organized church. All people could worship the supreme lawgiver, the grand, great architect of the universe, as Masons came to call him, and live according to his immutable precepts, known as the laws of nature, as they are expressed in the religions of the world and in the Bible. Religions simplified in this manner received the name deism, which, if you've ever looked into Thomas Jefferson, some of the founding fathers, was very popular at the time. Uh, it's very popular in England, and one of the main interests of this deism, the so-called religion of nature, was to improve the moral conditions that prevailed in England at the time. Basically, what deism says is that the universe was created. There is a creator. We owe him we are under rational obligation to pay him homage. That being said, he kind of started things and backed away. And so you wouldn't pray to him to help you pay the rent because he's not that involved in our lives. Some would argue, some deists argue, that he put into place the laws of physics, the laws of the universe, and then again, sort of backed away. Because if you rule an entire universe, are you really worried about John Smith's grandma's cardiac or cataracts? So, it's an interesting idea. It was felt that somehow the Christian church had failed because of the low moral standards which prevailed in England at the end of the 17th and beginning of the 18th centuries. It was hoped by the proponents of deism that this emphasis on morality as part of the religion of nature would help to raise the moral standards of England. This must be noted in considering the background for religion when we deal with issues in Freemasonry. So, when we look at religion and masonry, it's going to be shaped by a lot of these ideas. With this in mind, it's easy to see how speculative Freemasonry became deistic especially since its founders wanted to use it as a means of improving the morals of the people, and at the same time putting forward the ideas of the Enlightenment. The place to look for proof of this is argued to be in the charges of Freemasonry as found in Anderson's Book of Constitutions, 1723. 
There, the first charge concerning God and religion is significant. It says, quote, A mason is obliged by his tenure to obey the moral law, and if he rightly understands the art, he will never be, I'm quoting directly from Anderson's here, a stupid atheist, nor an irreligious libertine. But though in ancient times masons were charged in every country to be of the religion of that country or nation, whatever it was, yet tis now thought more expedient only to oblige them to that religion in which all men agree. As an aside, it reminds me of the line about masonry universal that we find in many of our teachings. Continuing. Leaving their particular opinions to themselves, that is, to be good men and true, or men of honor and honesty, by whatever denomination or persuasion they may be distinguished, whereby masonry becomes the center of union and the means of conciliating true friendship among persons that must have remained at a perpetual distance. Again, referring to that idea of this religious strife happening in England specifically at this time, Uh, arguments that we'll get into in part two a little bit. And basically saying, look, there's got to be something better. There's got to be something better than armies from either side that could march through my town at any time, burn my house, loot my stuff. There's got to be something different. And that's basically what Anderson is saying here. The denomination is unimportant as long as you have belief. Continuing. In these words are summed up the religion, quote, the religion of masonry, as it has continued to this day. This first charge is an expression of the religion of nature, the religion of the enlightenment, the religion of natural man, which masonry continues to champion. This was also the removal of Christianity from masonry, so that it could become a universal fraternity that would appeal to men of all religions. In England specifically, that's going to be important. Again, you have the issues of Catholic versus Protestant commonly from the 16th through the 17th, 18th centuries there. Joseph Newton uh, is correct when he says that in the Book of Constitutions of 1723, masonry severed itself once for all from any one church or sect, making itself, henceforth, free of any system of theology. And I'm just going to jump in there and say, when he's talking about freeing yourself from a system of theology, in other words, freed from a specific organized religion, all Masons are not fill-in-the-blank religion. This allows for that universality. From this time on, Freemasons were to be held only to that religion in which all men agree. That religion, according to the charges, is simply to be a good men and true, or men of honor and honesty. What more is this than the religion of the Enlightenment, or at least here the author is arguing it's the religion of the Enlightenment. I would argue it is, in, sense, in a sense, a form of deism. So we have a common denominator of natural religion that the deists were looking for, and which, in the end, they made primarily a system of morals that they felt were part of the law of nature. No wonder this first charge has been looked upon as the introduction of a new religion into masonry. And he keeps saying religion. I would almost say uh, a faith, something more 
abstract than religion here. Furthermore, the reason given for this charge uh, from this change from Christianity, which had been part of the ritual of the old operating guilds of Masons, more than likely, and by the way, that old religion of the operating guilds was probably, uh, again, defined by where they were. If you're in a Protestant area, it's going to be a Protestant faith. If you're in a Catholic area, it's going to be a Catholic faith, again, referring to England. So, this is a shift from those religions to the enlightened religion is stated in the words, tis, "'Tis now thought more expedient." These words seem to indicate that a deliberate change was being made in the nature of masonry. That change was to a form of deistic universalism, or at least that's what he's arguing here, which was so popular or becoming popular both in America and in England at the time. And when I say popular, not amongst the common people, but amongst those that saw themselves as the ruling class, the intellectuals, typically this is going to be the middle class, not so much the aristocracy, although there are some aristocrats who will get involved in these ideas and movements. And these are the people who are being the most impacted by these religious wars, so it makes sense that they're doing this. The one theme that runs through the remaining charges is that a Freemason should be an upright person. He should live in such a way that he will be a credit both to himself and to the fraternity. This again is a reflection of this attitude of deism, which made morality the center of religion. And when he says making morality the center of religion, what he's referring to is this idea that instead of making the center of religion a single figure, be it deity or... Uh, however you want to look at that, instead focusing on the morality. And I would note that that focus shift is something that was probably happening in Europe, arguably going back to the 15th century, when you see what are now termed the heretical movements. But these different uh, religious ideas of reform to the church, they're happening in the 15th century leading up to that Protestant Reformation. And when you're surrounded by all of this, it all starts to make sense. Why would you want to be involved in something that the organization itself seems to be leading to the conflict, at least from their perspective at the time? This, again, is a reflection of that attitude of deism, which made morality the center of religion, the one uniting feature in all various religions, and so the central feature in the religion of nature. That the founders of Freemasonry intended to teach this universal religion in which morality and fatherhood of uh, God and the brotherhood of man were to be stressed is certainly a conclusion reached by many Masonic writers, including Dara. He also points out that Freemasonry rests on a broad spirit of toleration as a reaction to the religious wars that characterized England at the time. So it does create a rather interesting circumstance. In this consideration of the religious significance of the charges of masonry, it should be added yet that not all Christian elements are, of course, removed from masonry. In fact, there are several that are maintained during the period of Great Schism. The ancients objected to the dechristianizing policy of the moderns, which we've covered in an early episode of the podcast. However, there's a compromise made in the reunion in 1813. The Christian features, many of them, are sacrificed. And Newton uh, even alludes to this when he says that all the union of these 
At the union of these two groups, the universal religious character of the craft was finally affirmed, and the last definite trace of dogmatic theological influence vanished from our fraternity. We have the Enlightenment, this period of time when people start to question belief. Not just religious belief, any belief. Anything in existence. If you are told the sky is blue because God made it blue, they're going to look for a reason why it's blue. They're going to start testing it and observing it. At the same time, we're seeing the development of this idea of man as uniquely rational amongst all of creation. And we see the development of this idea of morality over deity. In other words, the deity takes a back seat to the moral teachings. And that morality is seen as universal, as applying to all religions. In fact, we did an episode on the podcast uh, last year on Masonic universality where I get into some of those issues where oftentimes these are universal virtues. Things like the golden rule. Almost every society has it. It's not unique to Christianity, nor is it unique to Masonry. And yet, they're focusing, they want to focus on that instead of the dogma, instead of the question of whose God is the real God. And that creates this unique universality that makes perfect sense when you consider all of the conflict in England at the time. But that's the religious side. Next time, I want to get into the more intellectual, more scientific side of the Enlightenment, how it impacts Masonry. What were Masons doing at the end of the 18th century or during the 18th century in their meetings? How are they encouraging these ideas? This is all like looking back at an album of who we were or who Freemasonry was as an adolescent, seeing those formative years. And with this understanding, hopefully you can look at the teachings, you can look at the ritual and get a richer understanding of exactly what's being said and possibly more importantly, why it's being said. That all being said, all that's left for me to do is to thank you for joining me, Brother Chris Lidke, and the entire Further Light team on your quest to find more light through masonry. Are you interested in learning more about Freemasonry in Wisconsin? Visit wisconsinmasons.org to learn more about masonry and access further educational content and more light. Once again, that address is wimasons.org. Any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email us at education at wisconsinmasons.org. And thank you for listening.